Welcome to Owned by Everyone, a series of eight podcasts recorded at an extraordinary two-day conference held at the end of March 2023. Our venue was the seminar room at the Cambridge Conservation Initiative in Cambridge University's David Attenborough Building. Speakers stayed at Pembroke College, which also hosted a conference dinner with our speaker, the leading campaigner for our waters, Fergal Sharkey. The subject which drew us together under a phrase come banner owned by everyone first unfurled in 1985 by Ted Hughes, poet laureate and a great environmental advocate and activist for his beloved rivers and their wild fish, is the wonder, plight and future of chalk streams. What made our discussions extraordinary? Well, those who spoke and the timing of what they said. Ninety women and men met after nearly three years of planning to bring an unprecedented range of experience, expertise and passion to a subject more and more of the public now know is as urgent as the chalk streams themselves are valuable. We aimed in the talks we gave and the discussion that followed for a clarity to match chalk stream water flowing at its best. So we wanted to share them with a much larger audience than our venue could accommodate. With everyone, in fact. With children of all ages. That is, anyone who can feel that wonder. With policymakers and those responsible for making decisions about our use and abuse of the hugely undervalued but life-giving element of water in each of our homes and in the Mother of Parliaments. We hope you find these talks refreshing, stimulating, enraging by turns, and ultimately that you want to act on what you hear. Thanks for listening. Hello to everyone. Yeah, so we're going to look at, I, I suppose, on a variety of levels, we're going to look at do, but also big national restoration strategies and how we can save our chalk rivers. We've, I think, I hope there'll be time for a good discussion on this because we've touched you know, today and yesterday yeah. over so many different themes which keep coming up, whether it's the cost of water, whether it's the fantastic work that citizen scientists are doing to gather data to put pressure on regulators or decision makers or politicians. Actually, we have a politician in the audience We've talked about engagement activism. We've talked about, you know, legal challenges. So hopefully all these things can potentially feature in, um, in a discussion after we've heard from our three speakers. But let's start by introducing the first. We have Pippa Halings, who's founder and CEO of Talking Transformation Limited, which, as I understand it, works as a mediator to bring diverse voices into policymaking around the planning. I think this is going to follow on really well from the pressures we heard about in terms of Cambridge and development and all the abstraction that's going on. And Pippa also works as a councillor on the South Cambridgeshire District Council, and I believe is a candidate at the next general election for the Dems. So, Thank you very much. And I just love this mixture that's come through, Mark and all the organisers, of the cultural, the personal, the legal, environmental, and the political, which is a part of which I will be bringing. But 
I'd just like to share, first of all, in terms of the cultural side, a poem that means a huge amount to me. And in fact, it was a poem that my husband and I read out to each other on our wedding day. And particularly, perhaps pertinent in that the House Martins have just gone on to the UK's red list of endangered birds. Can we believe this? And so listen to the last line of this poem about this, because it's about the sand martin rather than the house martin. Fetch me the sand martin, skimming and veering, breast to breast with itself in the clouds in the river, and at the worn mouth of the hole, flight after flight after flight, the swoop of his wings, the love and kissed home. A glottal stillness, an eardrum. Far in, feather brains tucked in silence, a silence of water, looping the bank. Mold my shoulders inward to you, a clue do it. Be damp, play, pouting. And let me listen under your ears. I've worked around 30 years living and working internationally on the issues that I was introduced by, and that's mainly on how do you get different voices into decision making. And that's been in East Africa and then 15 years in South America, and particularly around issues of water management and water governance in the Andes. I was based for nine years in Ecuador where we work regionally with Peru, where in Lima is the city that with climate change will be the first city to run out of water for its massive population. Quito, which is fed by the glaciers, dripped down through the tundra into the city, will be the next city. And that was where I was living and working. And we were looking at how do you look at upstream and downstream rights of those of access to the water. That water then goes straight to the coast. So basically, what's being flushed out from Quito is what ends up as people's drinking water on the coast in Esmeralda. So we were looking through that. I was the director of an NGO for nine years there doing this kind of work. And latterly, Ecuador is one of the first countries to declare water constitutionally to have rights, to be subject to the law. Now... It was fascinating hearing this morning about the, the case law and, and um, Carol's work. That's absolutely brilliant. It doesn't mean that in Ecuador yet, that is stopping the mercury poisoning of the rivers because of informal gold mining massively, nor of the fact that there is over-abstraction of the water by the water companies. But it is a start, and the water funds, which look at who pays in for the water that they're getting upstream, and who is receiving downstream and being a beneficiary of, of this is that whole system. So when I arrived back in the UK, and some of this was DIPID funding, so with our ODA international funding that was paying for this, I found out we're not doing water catchment management in the UK in the same way. How was this that we were encouraging and working with you know, communities and companies and governments in other countries, but not doing it here in our own country? And we arrived in 2012. So in 2018, as I was looking around at what was happening in terms of development, and I couldn't believe there were so many unplanned developments happening, so many unplanned housing developments, poorly designed, over-development, 
how could this be happening? And I, I do environmental governance. So I looked and I said, okay, so the place where you can have some power to influence and see where the teeth are in terms of policy and regulations and instruments is at the planning authority. That's the district um, level. And, and I stood for election and it's been amazing. I've just recently stood for re-election in 2022. So I'm now in my fifth year. And it is brilliant. I think you can do huge change at local level. Absolutely massive change. But what's shocking to me, actually, when I got in, that we just adopted a new local plan, the development plan, which is basically the Bible for what happens in terms of planning. And I became chair of the planning committee. And that is where I think there's a democratic space where you actually argue out and hear the balance and see, you know, whether. But I do believe that the national, the MPPF, which is the planning guidelines nationally, favour development. Everything is about sustainable development, but it has a balance in favour of development. That's just what the situation is. But I really believe in the planning system. Let's look at the levers and the teeth and the tools and find that we have very, very few in South Cambridgeshire really through the, the current local plan. And so I started talking to planners about how we could get more in terms of climate change, how we could get more in terms of nature. And the environment was really bottom because they said, well, we're already heaping so much on developers, you know, in terms of their section 106 and what they're paying for. You can't add something else on it at the end. And I was there in 2018, 2019. It was the beginnings of Natural Cambridgeshire, which is now the established charity, where they were looking at how do we push environment and get it up higher up the planning agenda and also with many of you in the room Cam Valley Forum Stephen Tompkins who were saying you know through citizen science showing that actually the environment agency should have already reported an environmental drought and hadn't done so how could that get into planning so I took all this back to our planners and it's not enough evidence in front of the inspectorate so this is where I and said to me said this morning about changing the system from within if you're working within the policy side. And that's what I've been trying to do. So from within, how much can you do? And it's about a balance. You, know, you have to balance the needs of the local population with what I think are the needs of the local environment as well. So looking at what do you have to do to make sure that you can get something through the inspectorate, because that in the end is where we need to do a big other change. And for planners, they needed the evidence, evidence that would convince the inspectorate. So what I found in the planning committee was, in terms of abstraction or concerns about sewage, that local people, very knowledgeable, would be arguing against a planning application. And one of the statutory consultees you know, are the water companies. What I didn't realise for two years, because we'd say, well, actually, here's a report done by those who are saying, there, you know, there is sufficient water and there is sufficient capacity to manage the search. What I didn't realise is there's something called the automatic right to connect. So you have officers, councillors who you're told that, yes, of course, we've got the capacity to provide the water. Yes, we have the capacity to manage the search. That's your, you're being given that as advice. What I didn't know is the automatic right to connect means that the water companies have to say that whether they can do it or not. And the fact that that has gone three times to Parliament to be changed and has not been changed. It's changed in Scotland, it's changed in Ireland, it's changed in Wales, but it hasn't changed here. So that's a real thing that we've got to, to make sure we can change. And that the water companies do put their hands up and say when they can't, they don't have the capacity either to provide the water or to, to do it. So that's kind of one around the tools. 
The other is about what we do with the suds and, and what we do in terms of the design of housing and the water efficiency. And all of these were really, you know, quite deficient. And about biodiversity. I think Rob McGovern's book here was through South Cams was, was a voice that as when I arrived, and unfortunately he was leaving, but everybody was saying, you know, this is the person who's been fighting for this within the council as well. How to get it into the planning side was absolutely what we're trying to look at. And this is one of the one things I want to talk to you about developments on the CAM is scale and type of development and what we can do and what are the levers and teeth. And the other is about developments in what we're trying to do through some of these instruments that we have that hopefully can help us. So what we then did was said, we've got the new local plan being developed because the inspector said with the last one, the reason why there were so many unplanned developments was the plan that had been put forward was found unsound. So between 2014 and 2018, four years, there wasn't a local plan that was being found by the inspector. That meant that developers could go through and even if you got it rejected by the planning committee, it could go to appeal and it probably would go through. And that was what was happening. So when you don't have a local development plan with the policies, you can't apply any of the policies. And the inspector said, we're passing this one now, but actually you've got to work straight away on the next one because it's still not good enough. So immediately we've been working on the new local development plan. What we need evidence and the fact that the electorate wants to see something different. What we managed to get was the first consultation that went out said, what are your priorities? And in the priorities, we included biodiversity, water, climate change, as well as jobs, homes and infrastructure. What came back were the top four priorities were biodiversity and climate change. The officers didn't really know what to do with this. <laughs> so then what we said, now let's go to the evidence in terms of over-abstraction. We're worried about the level of development and the impact of that on the abstraction on the aquifers. We've got one of the first in the country was the Stantec report, which is an integrated water management report. It doesn't just say what kind of design of housing do you need, how many litres of water per person according to the design of the house. It actually says what is happening in the water cycle in our area and what would happen in terms of different levels of development pressure upon that. The results that came back, there were three levels of house building dependent on the need of house building that's in the area. One was low, which was below the objectively identified housing need. There was a medium level of growth. And then there was the high, which was the Cambridge Ahead projected housing demand. The Stantec report came back saying this is a deal breaker. You cannot, beyond the currently allocated number of houses, which is the current local plan, is already causing environmental damage. And further, you cannot avoid environmental damage by building more. And so therefore it said, if you want, you can't do the house, you can't do the pop. You could do the middle if the regional infrastructure was there in time. But at the moment, it's planned for the late 2030s. So if you accelerated that regional infrastructure and brought the pipe in, the graph on water, if you did the reservoir, if that could come further faster, then you could be maybe talking about some of that medium. Now, if a local planning authority does not meet the objectively identified housing need, you go back into unplanned development. So you don't have your policies, you don't strategically place them where you want to be, you're at the hands of the developers. About balancing now, where there is that need, how we place it with what design, but finally the planners 
have accepted that this is strong enough evidence for the first time ever that this could actually be something in which you determine what type and scale of development there is, as long as that is held out, you know, as long as that sort of keeps going in terms of the pressure. Now, we can talk about it later in the questions, but we were then waiting for Water Resources East. It was great to hear this morning um, about their analysis and the planning that they're doing, which is fantastic with all stakeholders, and Anglia Water's management plan. In Cambridge Water, we just came out with their water management plan. For me, hugely disappointing because it removes evidence from us that there isn't enough water. Cambridge Water says there is enough. They have capacity to deal with this. Now, this is where everyone gets busy because that's out now for comment and consultation. If we lose a huge piece, a huge plank of evidence where they're saying we've analysed this. We don't actually, you know, we can stagger when we're doing the extra capacity we need. We can actually manage the need and the demand. That's going to be really tough for us to manage how we, you know, balance the evidence that's in front of us. So that's one area. And where we're actually now, we just had a meeting three weeks ago where all planners and all councillors on South Cambridgeshire District Council said this will not be development at all costs. And we will hold to the line that if it is shown that there is not the water, then basically, if the growth in this area is seen as a good thing and is one of the drivers of the UK economy right now, post-COVID, pre-COVID and post-COVID even more, then you need to bring in the infrastructure. This cannot be dealt with just by us here at this local level. This has to be nationally looked at and how we support those infrastructure developments to be able to stop the <laughs> Second thing about developments on the camp would be about then something that is local but also national for me, and it's about sewage. And it's just a scandal because I think somebody mentioned private equity. I think just the whole investment model since it was being deregulated, you know, it's gone into um, privatization has meant that there hasn't been the investment in the infrastructure to change from Victorian sewers to 21st sewers that we need. And now what we're hearing is it's too expensive to suddenly do all at once. If we then bring this locally, we know from the work that's done by citizen science and that we heard from Mike Foley this morning, that shows that the levels of pollution and contamination and E. coli in our chalk streams is just unacceptable. Anglian Water is accepting the same, and they have taken over those 15 um, water quality monitoring sites. My concern is this year, in July, without anybody really noticing, the government ditched the national water quality target and indicator. We no longer have to report nationally or internationally on water quality. How many people in the room knew that? Two people in the room. What they've replaced it with are two indicators around pollution. So you only now have to say, are you reducing pollution? But you don't have to say, what's the health and quality of our rivers and chalk streams? One way you can do that, and here's when we look at levers and we look to levers and policy levers, is the safe bathing designation. So for me, this isn't just about swimmers and wild swimmers. Through the safe bathing designation, the Environment Agency, together with the water companies, are required 
to monitor the water quality of the river. How many are there in the country, inland rivers, which have safe bathing designation? Two. Two. Both of them, what's their level that they've been reported at? Four. Four. 15, it was recorded last week, 15 applications for safe bathing designation inland waters, in rivers, were rejected. What we're doing with South Cams, building on, standing on the shoulders of giants, which has been Cam Valley Forum and the, and the swimming, well, swimmers groups, it has to be a local authority that requests that designation. So following on a motion that I made, South Cambridgeshire District Council is now pursuing the process to apply for safe bathing designation of a stretch of the river camp, which what it will enable us to do is through one of those stretches, we're able to understand constantly and be accountable for the water quality. And I hope that we can get a lot of support from everybody around, you know, for that to be a reality. Because in the end, if nationally there is no requirement for a target, then you've got to look at what are the other ways and not just it's about people's they're doing it because they believe in it like Anglian Water and you get a change of, of personality at the head of the organisation and you've lost it. Or profits come before um, good practice. So those were just two examples I wanted to give you of developments on the CAM and happy to answer any questions later. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Pippa. That was absolutely wonderful. And yeah, huge amount of admiration for people like yourself who say there's a problem here. How can I help? Where can I get involved and actually try and change the system? Which one show style leads me seamlessly on to our next speaker, who I would definitely put in that category. I don't think he needs much introduction to uh, many of you. I would like to get an OB with chalking services. Charles is a very distinguished writer books but also i think quite influential reports that journalists like me pour over and try and work out what's going on and, and there's also very hands-on free wiggling rivers putting chalk streams back where they should be and uh, and generally sort of getting stuck in and doing what he thinks is right and been very involved in chairing the chalk stream restoration uh leading to the strategy so i think he's here to tell us a bit about some of those big picture solutions thank you yeah Hi there, everybody. Um, so that's, yes, that's exactly what I've been doing, chairing the Chalk Stream Restoration Group for the last, well, two and a half years. Some other members of the group are here in the room. I'll get on to what the group comprised in a second. Last night, Mark asked us for the, you know, to think about a kind of moment when, when we suddenly became aware of issues in Chalk Stream. So I, I did a hasty revision of my slides. Include this next one, which was the River Tarrant in Dorset in 1995. I used to drive over that river every day, twice on the way to school and back where I was a teacher. And uh, in the summer of 1995, it began to dry up in the sort of early summer. And I ended up rescuing trout from the river with nets, which I'd borrowed from the National Rivers Authority. And my heavily pregnant wife, Vicky, helped the son, who she was pregnant with, is now 27. And, and still the problem of over-abstracting chalk streams has not gone away. Um, but that, I think, it was that experience that cemented in my mind the, that what I wanted to do was, when, whenever I could, is try to uh, fix rivers. So I've done 
you know, I've, I set up the Wild Trout Trust or helped with, with a number of people and I was a part of it and I'm still a, a vice president of the Wild Trout Trust and then I've worked on WWF campaigns and so on and so forth. And so over time, and I've done a lot of work on the River Nara in Norfolk, so over time I've gradually acquired knowledge, I actually did a degree in fine art. So, but I was invited by the Rivers Trust and the Environment Agency to help chair this group years ago. And they said, we want to do a, an action plan for the, for the restoration of chalk streams. And I said, well, we've got lots already. This is just a list of some of the plans that have been published over time by various institutions and organisations. And so I said to Mark and, and Sarah, is this plan, when we finished it, going to result in action or is it going to be just another plan? I hope there is a difference. And the difference is the collaborative nature of it and to a degree the compromise nature of it because it's collaborative. So what is it? Well, it's a plan and strategy leading to a set of recommendations for how to restore good ecological health to English chalk streams. And they suffer from such a range of pressures in different places that that's quite a task because one set of pressures on another river is not going to be replicated on, on another one. So what I felt was different about this strategy, though, is that it, it involved the regulators and the industry and the NGOs and the independent stakeholders and a huge amount of consultation. So to a degree, it was like herding cats. We were trying to get groups who are almost vying with each other and certainly at loggerheads often um, to agree on the ways we solve some of these problems. And it was quite a task. There were a lot of brilliant people involved. The panel had the Environment Agency and Ofwat, DEFRA, Natural England, experts from NGOs, WWF, Angling Trust, Wildlife Trust, Rivers Trust. Ali's here today. I had an expert panel. Kate talked to you yesterday. Kate was on the panel along with some other brilliant experts in their field. So we had a main panel, we had an expert panel, and then a huge amount of consultation, some of before last, literally thousands of emails. My email intray is bonkers. We had river walks, and that all added up to 30-plus recommendations. And I really wanted this to be tight and simple because I felt the longer it would be, yes, the, 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 the problems are amazingly complex, but the longer the shopping list gets, the harder it is to keep the ask to government really nice and simple and focused. We published the strategy in October 2021 and tasked the various lead partners any, that were responsible for any given recommendation with a year to go away and investigate that recommendation and then come back with a timetable and commitments. And the timetable was published, the first timetable was published last November. That is available on the CABA website. It's not complete by any means. We've made progress in some areas and we've made absolutely zero progress in other areas. But it's an iterative process and this implementation plan will be revisited on an annual basis and probably republished well, when is relevant every every few years with hopefully new commitments and new timetables. So it's the first time one of those plans has been signed up to by all of the organisations and stakeholders responsible. And it's the first time we've actually had a timetable attached to it. I don't really need to talk about this. Why do chalk streams need this strategy? Well, you all know they're globally unique. They're only here in, in England and Denmark and France. They're culturally and historically very special rivers. They're the most biodiverse of all English rivers because they're lowland, but they're high flows, or should be. But they're under intense pressure. Chalk streams flow through the most urbanised, industrialised and intensely farmed parts of the UK. And I don't need to tell you here in Cambridge that that is the case. 
And also, sometimes they don't flow at all. That's a river from just along the chalk. That's the Ival. So it's not a tributary of the Cam, but it almost could be just over the watershed from the Ashwell Springs. One of the most heavily abstracted of the chalk streams. That's indeed all your Cambridge rivers are. And there's another reason there, which I'll talk about later. They are the least capable of self-repair. And that's really, really critical. They're very, very gentle rivers. So what you do to them stays done, especially physically. The strategy is structured around this trinity of natural flow, clean water, and natural habitat, because that's where you get the best cost benefit. You can restore flow to a canal, and it's still a canal. You can put clean water down a canal, and it's still a canal. If you then restore the habitat, you get maximum benefit. So you get these things, they biomagnify each other, or they biosubtract from each other, if that's the phrase. Improvements in one are greatly exaggerated and accelerated if they are matched by improvements in the others. And that's a key thing for round here because your rivers are very, very heavily, like the rivers in Norfolk, physically modified. The lowland rivers of, of East Anglia and Lincolnshire are very heavily modified, more so than the, the rivers of Wessex and, and all chalk streams are heavily modified. So the 30 plus recommendations covering a range of things, actually getting people to agree what we mean by sustainable abstraction as opposed to bandying the phrase around willy-nilly, but never actually pinning it down. The need to review the water framework directive assessment points, because if you take the IVAL, for example, where the assessment point is below a sewage works, it's rated as supports good for flow, good ecology for flow, when most of the time the river's dry. And that's because the assessment point is below a discharge of a sewage works and a tributary. So we need to re review those boundaries and we especially need to review them up here in East Anglia because as you get topographically lower, the chalk streams are shorter and then they reach lowland reaches much more quickly than the rivers of Wessex. So as you know, your chalk streams are quite short, same in Norfolk. And then they, they flow into very different types of water bodies, Fenland, really quite sort of man-made water bodies, and yet the water body boundaries encompass both, and therefore they, the WFD doesn't adequately protect the chalk stream reach. So a review of those boundaries and assessment points, particularly where flow is assessed and sewage. Upgraded sewage treatment in, in small works. I'll get onto some of this in detail. And because we can't do everything to all chalk streams at once, we have as part of the strategy a national network of flagship catchment restoration projects and that is to demonstrate and develop the art of the possible it's to inspire others it's to show what river restoration can achieve and it's to make the case for the application of the strategy on all chalk streams so the idea is that we apply all of the recommendations in the strategy to this set of rivers and everyone signed up to that the water companies are kicking off the process by sponsoring the plans and I'm very much hoping, and they should be liaising with local rivers trusts and stakeholders to produce those. That's happening to a greater or lesser degree, depending on the companies, but the, the scoping plans are already there. They're already published. They're also available on the CAVA site. And your local stream is the grantor. So this is the network, the River Anton down in Wessex, tributary of the test, the Ems, which is near Southampton, South Flowing Short Stream, the neighbour of the Mion. The Pang, tributary of the Thames, the Chess, which is being shared between Affinity and Thames, the River Beam, which is an Affinity River, just the other side of the watershed from the Idle and the Ashwell, the River Lark, the Granta, you're very pleased to see, the Great Stour and the Hill. I'm going to skip through these, but these are all the other recommendations in the plan. I've already shown a list of that, so I don't know quite why I repeated it with all these slides, but there we go, working late into the night on three pints of 
neck oil probably didn't help. <laughs> um, the, the target for sustainable abstraction has said the time-bound goals, I'll talk about that in a bit more detail in a second. The review of abstraction as a percentage of recharge, that I'll get on to in a minute. That's really, really important because when I started the process, I said, okay, so this river doesn't support good flow and this river does, but to what degree? And it was very, very difficult to actually access that information. It either did or it didn't. And I thought, well, the degree to which it doesn't is really quite important because it allows us to have a strategy and to, and to focus our efforts in the right direction. Democratizing data and knowledge. Now, that's something I've definitely got the vibe from in this meeting. It's probably the most knowledgeable audience I've ever spoken to about this strategy. And yet I still feel that there's an appetite for knowledge and how do we get engaged and how do we fix these things? It's really, really important. I think Knowledge is so vital because it arms all of you with information that you can then go to the government and water companies. And, you know, if you're armed with knowledge, you're much more formidable. And I don't want to use the word adversary because this whole capital strategy is about collaboration. Defining chalk streams as high priority sites in the storm overflow plan, it might have its faults. I know that there are quite a few people here who think the plan should be chucked in the bin, but it is a plan at least. And chalk streams are at least prioritized on it or in it. And I think that is the first step on the road to our one big ask, which I'll hopefully get to in a minute once I've skipped through all of these, and that is for a higher status of protection for chalk streams. Because over and over again, when I was having conversations with people about what are the roadblocks to progress, what would make a big difference, they would say to me that if you can unlock the investment drivers, that is what makes the difference. So on SAC rivers, on SSSI rivers, the in a way, the barrier to the investment is, is set, the bar is set much lower. On an SAC river, yeah. action like tertiary treatment sewage works, for example, is identified as highly likely to improve the ecology. It kind of happens. The bar is a little bit higher for triple SIs and a lot higher for every other chalk stream under just the water framework directive. So the idea would be take the brakes off the investment in, the, in that cost-benefit analysis process. And that's really, really key because... I'll show you some slides in a minute about the difference between the, the protected rivers and the, the sort of the more highly designated rivers. Now, you all know all chalk streams are high priority habitat. They used to be the only river priority habitat back at the, the origins of the Biodiversity Action Plan. Chalk streams were the riverine priority habitat. There was a review in 2007 and lots more river types and categories came into it. And chalk streams are now a subset. There was also back in those days a priority habitat investment driver and it was quite effective for a while and it doesn't really exist anymore it's only under the water framework directive so i'm really putting to government the one big wish is a bit of stardust on chalk streams because they're so rare internationally okay i'm conscious tony's over here but tony um, let's have a little bit of stardust on them let's call them the international priority habitat because that's what they are a badge that tells everyone these rivers matter to us as a country, right? And we're going to look after them. And symbolically, that could be really important. And then the dry bit, which is the investment driver, the cost-benefit analysis. However that is skinned, I don't really care and badged it. But what we need to do is we need to allow that investment to take place where currently it doesn't. So going to the sort of history of the ills that have beset our chalk streams because there's a long list and it goes back a long way in time. First of all, abstraction. So abstraction reached its peak pretty much in the mid 1980s. That's the River Ver. So abstraction had climbed to nearly 50 megalitres a day, which is well over. It's actually 60% of average recharge, average recharge. So in a low rainfall year, that's probably over 
the effective recharge. You're taking more water out of the ground that's going in. You kind of get aquifer mining when you do that. It has actually come down quite considerably since then. So it's now at about 32, that's at 27% now of aquifer recharge. So we've had these reductions, but from such a high peak that they're still not really obviously manifesting themselves in terms of ecological improvement on the rivers where the pressures are at their most acute, rivers like the Ver, the Cam, the Granta, etc. It got to such a point in time that in 1991, this was very much identified as a crisis, and it's where I certainly first became aware of this working in Dorset, and the National Rivers Authority, previous to the Environment Agency, published a report on low flows in rivers, and 15 chalk streams were identified as suffering from acute low flows. That's the list on the left. The ones in green are the ones that now support good ecological status for flow. So only five out of that list of 15 have improved to the point where they pass water framework directive in the in subsequent 30 years. So that's not fantastic progress. That report on abstraction as percentage recharge I mentioned, well, that chart on the left shows where we are. So it's the first figure that shows what happens when you have a designation. Because all the rivers I've circled in blue are the triple SI and SAC chalk streams. And they are all below the target we've set, which is abstraction is no more than 10% of recharge, well within it, in fact. Now, I'm not saying it's great on mm. rivers like the Test and Itchen, but it's a hell of a lot better on the Test and Itchen than it is on the Ivel. And probably for those rivers, the bar should be 5% actually on, on the designated rivers to, for the common standards. But you've got up the top, you've got rivers like the Cray, tributary of the Darrington, Kent, well over 60%. You've got the total Colm, well over 60%, the upper Lee knocking the door of 60% of recharge. These are massive, massive abstraction loads. And abstraction remains a problem. Set of photographs I've taken over the years of the River Bean at Whitewell in 2009. It wasn't really flowing then. That's just a ditch with water in it. 2017 in May, wasn't flowing at all. Last summer, still not flowing. And that grass didn't just start growing in that river channel yesterday. That's been there for a while. So what does that abstraction of percentage of recharge add up to? Well, same day, same drought. That's August last year. So the River Mimram, abstraction is 15% of recharge. It's probably the least abstracted of the Colne Lee chalk streams. So it's the neighbour to the Lee. 15% of recharge. There were children playing in the river. There was laughter. They were floating a little surfboard down the river. Uh, there was an angler downstream. Rob is a great friend of the River Mimram. He'll know that stretch. It's a beautiful bit of river, actually. Same day, the River Bean, neighbour to the Mimram, abstraction 40% of recharge, bone dry. The same day, the River Ival, abstraction 50% of recharge, bone dry. So that's where that makes a difference. It's the difference between dryness, a lack of engagement of the public, because it's just a dry ditch. There was just a rattle of dry leaves in those two places, and there were people enjoying the landscape in the Mimram. And I'm not saying things are perfect on the Mimram either. The Environment Agency wanted me to show these two slides because actually what Trevor spoke about this morning is there is hope in the water resource management plans and WRSE planning. There is hope because for the first time we've actually identified what these deficits are. The Environment Agency have put figures forward to WRSE and the water companies where the deficits identified actually stack up to what John Lawson had identified in his abstraction as percentage of recharge. The figures match quite, quite well, so they, they're credible. But they add up to quite significant um, abstraction reductions that are needed. So just to translate, so this is the low confidence, high confidence. This is just the, 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 the chalk region. And what it's showing you about is the chalk, the chalk 
water bodies that are heavily stressed by abstraction in the water company regions. And this indicates the scenarios. It's all environment agency stuff, so I can't speak through it very well, but I've got my own way of talking through it in a second. But the water companies have published those plans and they're really, really important to engage in. There's a couple of things I want to point out. There's a lot of investment on the cards. The scenarios go from low to high, but this is the really key thing. So this is just Thames Water. So this is not your local one, but it's one I wrote for our reply to Thames Water, where I dug out all of the chalk sources from this blizzard of, of figures and put them in one chart. The, the river, the source is in, in bold boxes on the left are the ones that I would determine the high priority sources. So they're the upper reaches of the chalk streams in the potentially lovely, ecologically pristine parts of the river. And then the color coding shows you when those abstraction reductions are scheduled for, and the scenarios are low, medium, and high. So what you can see when you actually dig down into the numbers is that there are a couple of relatively small abstraction reductions scheduled for 2035. You can see those in blue. And then the ones in green are scheduled, um, sorry, there's a couple scheduled for 2030 in green. So there's the first, a few more in blue for 2035, the yellow are 2040, and the red are 2050. So I think that these abstraction reductions, whilst they're on the cards, which is fantastic, and whilst they've been identified, that's fantastic, they're still a long way away. It's what uh, people are talking about just now with the infrastructure needed to enable these is a long way down the road. And what we've got to reply about to the, to the plans is we want timeliness. We've waited decades for these reductions. Why do we need to have to wait decades more? I know that some infrastructure is necessary, quite a lot of infrastructure, but there are ideas, and this is the Chalk Stream's first idea. There is an application for this, I believe, in Cambridge and on the CAM and Granter system, but this is where we started the idea. It's on the Colne. John Lawson identified to me that Affinity Water were building a pipeline. They needed it for all, all sorts of other aspects of their water resource planning. But it was a pipeline taking water from their southern regions all the way through the Chilterns. If you've got a pipeline like that, then you can realign the abstraction to how we should have done it in about 1950, which is you don't abstract the headwaters. You take the water from the lower reaches of the river and then you, you distribute it that way. So at the moment, what we do is we use gravity and the cleanliness of the water aquifer to pump really high quality water out of the ground in the headwaters. We use gravity to run it through our washing machines and clean our cars and fill our paddling pools and flush our loos. And so we fill it with poo and we put it at the bottom end of the river, bypassing the environment while we do it. And if we bypass the environment 60% of its flow, that means you haven't got an environment. This proposal is renaturalize the flows, reduce abstraction to below 10% of recharge throughout the headwaters of the chalk streams, allow the aquifer to fill back up with water, the flow will recover. Over the full year, you get about 80% of your flow back. It's much less in low flow, so there is an Achilles heel to the plan, but I'll talk about that if I've got time. And then you use the pipeline to redistribute it. There's a version of that that could work here. We've got a, a feasibility study going for the IVAL as well. So you dial down the abstraction and you do need storage because of that, that low flow, um, low, low return issue. So you need to be able to capture the water and then like a bank balance spread it out over the year. So when we move on to sewage now, we all know about illegal sewage discharges. Flushed away report, I've helped edit that report in 2017 when there was just no monitoring going on. There's now a lot of monitoring going on. So it seems like the problem is getting acceleratively worse and worse and it probably is. 
but it's been around forever. Just go and read the Sanitary Inspector's Report for High Wickham 1849 if you want to read about raw sewage discharges. It's pretty bewildering stuff. In 1981, new scientists published a report saying that every report since 1961 had identified that the British government should stop dumping raw sewage onto our beaches. So raw sewage discharges have troubled us for a long, long time. It's about time they ended. But I'm interested in, well, I'm also interested in the raw sewage, but the legal sewage discharges, because they are a major problem where you only have secondary treatment. And that's the difference between your SAC and SSSI chalk schemes and the, the percentage of treatment work that have tertiary treatment. So on SACs, it's nearly 90. On SSSIs, it's nearly 70. On all of the other chalk streams in urban wastewater treatment directive catchments, it's about 30. And on every other Cinderella chalk stream, 18% of sewage treatment works benefit from phosphorus stripping. It's a very stark statistic that that is the Wenson, so that does benefit from it. And what that adds up to, here's a little river in Norfolk, the River Stiffkey. There are four sewage treatment works on it, all of them absolutely tiny. They'll never get tertiary treatment under the current cost-benefit system. They just won't because they're too small and you don't have the cost-benefit per head. And the impact on the phosphorus, you can see the blue line is the phosphorus readings. And this is just going off the WFD data, which is, as you can see, suddenly there's a big hole in the data for about five years. But upstream of those villages, it's at good status most of the time. And when it isn't, that's probably farm runoff. But there's quite a considerable cumulative impact from four really very small sewage treatment works. That's the sort of thing that would change if we can change the cost-benefit process and enable that investment. So that's a summary for where phosphorus status of the designated chalk streams, so it's all good or high, and phosphorus status of the most acutely abstracted chalk streams, where it's all poor, with the exception of the Cray, which is an extraordinary one, I suspect, because it's so heavily abstracted the phosphorus isn't getting into the river. And the, and the Darren, which is at high status, which again is, is quite surprising, that especially as it's green sand in the upper river. But nevertheless, there's still quite a stark difference between those two things. So I'm not even going to get onto the habitat side of things. But the question I put to Kate in the pub last night was how long would it take chalk streams to recover? Because let's just assume we could fix all of the sewage and abstraction issues by dying as a human race. It's a really nasty form of COVID wipes us all out the day after tomorrow. Okay. How long will the chalk streams to recover from the picture on the left to the picture on the right? Well, I sort of said to Kate, well, two or three years for abstraction, we thought maybe more like 10 for the aquifers to fully recharge and probably about the same from in terms of sewage. The forever chemicals, well, it depends on the chemicals, says Kate, but they could hang around for a little while. How long will it take them to recover from the physical modifications that we've been exerting on these rivers since Neolithic man cut down all the trees, since we covered the rivers in water mills? There were 5,000 by the time William the Conqueror invaded in 1066. Most of them are on water mills. That's why we haven't got any salmon in East Anglia anymore. Since we built the flash locks so that we could build our priories on our chalk streams. And since we straightened and ditched all the rivers, that's the River Nar, the 20th century course in red and Fadden's 1797 course in blue. So we've made the upper Nar half as long as it used to be. So how long will it recover from all of that? And I am speeding through this now. The dredging, every chalk stream in England has been dredged. There you go, River Rib, Gypsy Race, River Stour, River Bean, River Bay. That's just a few pictures I plucked out of my library. You can read the dredging when you see nettles along the riverbank, when you see a slight bund along the edge, 
And when the river isn't flowing at almost bank full, which is where a chalk stream should be, the difference between the surface of the chalk stream and the surface of the floodplain should not be very far. And then that allows the chalk stream to get out of bank at high flows. It makes a massive difference to the ecology. How long will that take to recover, do you think, with a chalk stream? Centuries. Centuries, Rob, exactly. Maybe the next ice age. But the trouble with the next ice age argument is it might clear away all the chalk because it cleared away quite a lot last time. So we have physically damaged these rivers to such a degree that we have to give them a helping hand physically in terms of the physical restoration. We have to put the gravel back. That reduces species abundance. That's a fascinating slide. Just quickly, that's paleo core sample from the Stifke floodplain. Biodiversity of the early Mesolithic, 33%, roughly equal distribution between aquatics, woodland, and uh, grassland. By the Romano-British period, Neolithic man had helpfully cut down all the trees. And present day, we've drained all the rivers, and that's what we're left with. So how do we go from that, which is one of your local rivers, that's the Re, which is pretty sorry-looking, heavily dredged chalk stream, to that, which is a bit of the River Nile, which we've restored. Well, you have to do a very large amount of physical restoration. You reconnect the rivers to the floodplains, you restore natural meanders, you flood and create wet woodland and stage zero. You realign the rivers because no chalk stream flows where God put them. They're all diverted to the edge of the floodplains. And then you can do things like that and that. And that's the difference dredging makes. Section on the left, that's dredged. That was 40 centimetres, 60 centimetres over depth. We filled it back with gravel and, oh my God, there's ranunculus. hasn't been there for 50 years. I better shut up now. <laughs> but there you go. Physical restoration. Uh, thank you, Charles. Sorry, I'm being a very bad chair, but I just couldn't place interrupting any of that. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. And just, I suppose a note of optimism there. We heard the Avon talk yesterday, how, you know, triple SIs, SACs, you know, it didn't seem to make a difference. It was still sort of very polluted, but there is room for optimism there that designation can make a difference, can unlock that money. And, and we saw some very clear examples of that. Anyway, I will now introduce Stuart Clark, who works for the National Trust, uh, who's a national specialist for freshwater and catchments has done extensive research and work with chalk streams, but I think he's going to talk to us quite broadly about connecting perhaps some of that stuff, you know, rivers back into the landscape. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Uh, and really well set up, I think, where Charles left off about physical restoration, because that's what I'm going to focus on. And those of you who were here yesterday will have heard Dylan, who also works for the National Trust, talk about the brilliant work that they've been doing on the test. He showed that article which said, we like it shaggy, I think was the, the phrase. So that's kind of my excuse for this picture, which is not a chalk stream, but it's fed by lots of chalk streams. This is the Dorset Stour. Uh, and I think it kind of epitomises what I think about rivers and, and how they function, whether that's trees or whether that's plants. And that hopefully will come through with some of the things I, I kind of talk about now. So before I start, I'm very mindful of a room full of people who know lots about chalk streams, being on the agenda immediately after Charles, I kind of think I need to establish some credentials around short streams. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to do. And I pretty much owe lots of things. And this is an opportunity I don't get very often to kind of say thank you to Nigel Holmes, who some of you will know. Nigel used to live down the road from me. And as a young teenager, I don't know how it came about, but he found out that I was kind of interested in the outdoors and rivers and things. And Nigel really put a lot of time in to kind of helping me you know, kind of understand rivers. He made me put lots of macrophyte data into spreadsheets for him and kept me supplied with coffee and homemade flapjacks. And then the other thing he really taught me was just a huge amount of knowledge about how rivers work and, and what goes on. And I only know 
tiny, tiny fraction of what Nigel shared with me. You know, it's all forgotten, but it was incredible. And one of the things I did was uh, he took me out on loads of surveys in the early 90s where he was looking at loads of chalk streams that had been affected by the drought. And he was monitoring them three times a year. Like places that we've heard about, you know, the Bean, the Misborn, the Mimram, the Chess, the Bulborn. All of those streams got lodged in my mind, both from entering the data into Excel, but also being dragged out by Nigel. And those of you who know Nigel, he was like a real dynamo. So I had to be at his house for five o'clock in the morning, uh, and we'd be on the river all day until it went dark. And this is in, you know, middle of June. But he would always buy me a Magnum at the end of the day. <laughs> um, and it was really you know, a time when actually rivers were being thought about quite differently. And one of the things Nigel was working on was the New Rivers and Wildlife Handbook, which was kind of the birth, I suppose, of physical river restoration and mainstream. When loads of people in the environment agency, in the biodiversity and fisheries section, were pushing really hard their flood defence colleagues to do things differently. And, and it's actually really sobering to think that that was in the late 80s, early 90s. And up until that stage, you know, very much the kind of dreadful that we've heard about. And the people who straightened rivers still had the, very much had the upper hand. That led on to doing a PhD. I did a lot of stuff on short streams as part of my PhD. And one of the things that really lodged in my mind then, this is a not a great rendering of the image, but this critical role of plants within the system both in terms of shaping what goes on with the chemistry and the nutrients, but also what is happening to the physical structure. And that, I think that kind of thinking has shaped lots of things that I'm involved with now, lots of things we're doing as the Trust. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to give an introduction to the National Trust. I'm very mindful of the fact that Diana Reynolds is sitting here, so I'm, it'll be uh, just kind of from my perspective and where we are and what we're, what we're doing. And then I'm going to move on very quickly. I'm not going to dwell on it because we've heard a lot about the state of freshwaters and therefore where our work on freshwater sits within this. I'll talk about Lure, which is one of those Cinderella chalk streams that Charles has just mentioned. And then I'll move on to some stuff that we're doing, which I think is quite exciting and, and novel. And it's been mentioned a couple of times anyway, around stage zero. So this kind of physical restoration stuff. So the trust, I'm sure you're all familiar with the National Trust, but I kind of always include this because I think some people in their minds have this view about stately homes, gardens, parkland, and sometimes forget about the wider countryside bit. So just a reminder, really major landowner, 250,000 hectares of land, nearly 6 million members, 770 miles of coastline. And there's something about the nature of that land that means... You know, it's the land that is both very, very significant, but also it's that marginal land in many cases. And as a result, much of it is triple SI. So, you know, it feels like we have a really significant role in terms of nature conservation and looking after the natural environment. And I looked up because we we're talking about chalk streams. We've heard about the test, you know, which is a really iconic chalk stream that's in the National Trust care. But we have about 30 kilometres, which isn't a huge amount. But it's spread across 20 streams. So, you know, I think we've got a, an interest in the chalk stream environment. And I would argue we probably just need to be doing a bit more and we need to be reflecting that interest more than we currently do. The National Trust has really pivoted, I suppose, recognising that it has that land holding and that we can do things at a scale to make a difference. But really pivoted towards the three crises that we think are facing society. So the nature crisis the biodiversity crisis, if you like, the climate crisis, 
and the engagement with nature crisis. So the fact that people are disconnected, and that's about access, that's about understanding. So that's absolutely at the heart of our current strategy is those three crises and our response to them. So some of the things that we're trying to do, and this maybe is familiar to some of you, is get our land in better condition. So there's some stuff there about sorting it out, sorting it out from a carbon perspective, big tree planting targets, but also thinking about the habitat that we're creating. So thinking about habitat restoration on our own land, we've got to target 25,000 hectares of priority habitat to be created on trust land, but also thinking about working with partners, working beyond our boundaries. So a 25,000 hectare priority habitat target, which is off our land as well. And very much thinking about what can we do with our land to address those three crises of nature, climate, and people's disengagement from the natural world. So what does that all mean for fresh waters? I think Tom showed this image about free-flowing rivers around the world. This is a kind of global picture. We know that we've really messed up our rivers for a variety of reasons to exploit those ecosystem services that water provides and the fact that we rely on it. So globally, the picture isn't great. And I'm not going to go into detail because we talked about that yesterday. I think the WWF uh, Living Planet Index stuff is really telling. And that's starting to play out now with this recognition that the freshwater biome is suffering more and at a faster rate than the terrestrial and marine environments, which is kind of counter to what we've been told up until recently. And then, of course, there's the local picture, which is about our own river systems and the fact that they are in such poor condition. And I won't dwell on that. I think that bit is also linked to what we've done. And I keep coming back to this image, which came from the Wetland Vision work, which was a big partnership project in 2007, 2008, which was an attempt to kind of show what was the historic extent of wetlands in England and what does it look like now? And if you take nothing away from this other than the fact that once we lived in a very wet country and somehow... We live in a place where wetlands are a very insignificant part. And one of the things that, you know, is really clearly missing on there is the 500 square miles of Fenland that was once a huge wetland. And now we're talking about this part of the country not having enough water. So that's a symptom of the massive amount of change that we've inflicted upon our landscape. And I think it's that landscape bit that we really need to focus on. So from a philosophical perspective, one of the things that's really guiding our water catchment work in the Trust is... Let's not just focus on the river systems. Let's not just focus on the bigger lakes. Let's focus on the whole of the freshwater landscape. So we know that some of those smaller water bodies, the headwaters, the ponds, the small wetlands are absolutely critical. And they are the reservoirs for biodiversity. And particularly given the problems that our bigger water bodies are going to take so long to solve, we can do some really quick things with those smaller water bodies. And this kind of extends into to land as well. And this is what Dylan was saying yesterday when he talked about the Mottisfont estate. You know, thinking about how do we manage our land better from a water perspective? And we talk about these three things that we're trying to do with water, which is to slow, store and filter. And that's a mantra, if you like, that doesn't come from within the trust, but we've kind of adopted quite a bit to say, this is what we're trying to do. And that's going to help with drought resilience. It's going to help with habitat creation, creating space for species that have been lost from the landscape. And it could potentially be really good from a carbon perspective. And this idea of teal carbon for wetland carbon, which comes from the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, is quite seductive, I think, in terms of talking about how we might approach things from that perspective. And of course, if we put these things back in the landscape, there are benefits to people and those access opportunities as well. 
And I said I'd talk a little about the Babapure, which is a very much a Cinderella chalk stream, a neglected one, no level of protection, despite the fact that it feeds the Norfolk Broads, an internationally important wetland site. And it rises close to two National Trust properties, Blickling and Felbrig. And it's been part of a programme of work we have called Riverlands, which is about integrated catchment management. So trying to look at rivers that are running through our land, thinking about them in a catchment context, working in partnership with the Rivers Trust, with local community groups, trying to improve things. And certainly the Bure needs some improvement. There's lots of issues on the Bure that are common to many chalk streams. But as we've heard, one of the things is that essentially those East Anglian rivers have been very, very heavily modified. And that means that the water quality problems and any abstraction problems are magnified. So the Bure has lots of issues around physical modification, but it also has lots of water quality problems associated with agriculture. And they're all within the scope of the things that we've been doing there. Um, we've also been doing a bit of citizen science to try and engage people with this. So we've done some environmental DNA stuff. So we've had a group of local community folk and the Angling Club going out and collecting water samples, getting them analysed. And it's like magic to people because you get a long speech with this and all you did was collect a water sample. And they've been doing that and linking that up with some of the work they've been doing. I'm not going to say any more about that, but if anyone's interested, I can talk to you about it afterwards. In terms of tracking the water policy problems on the Bure, this is a slide that um, was shared by our project manager. So one of the big problems is all of this agricultural runoff. So this sort of shocking picture at the top just gives you an idea about what's, what's going on. Trying to change some of that stuff, but also putting in some silt traps. And this is a kind of really interesting set of samples that show what happens. So the, the good thing is this shows that the silt trap is working. And there's this incredible colour associated with a pollution event which turned out to be agricultural runoff plus a pile of rotting carrots uh, <laughs> beside the, the river. And it went through two of these kind of silk trap structures. I'm, I'm always a bit nervous about silk traps because they don't get managed. And really, we should be tackling the problems at source. But it really does show that the clean water at the source, the pollution source, through one silk trap and then coming out of the bottom one, actually it was making a difference. So if we can keep on top of that and if we can put more of those sorts of things in the catchment, that buys us a little bit of time perhaps to get the proper change that we really want to see. So we're thinking about landscape scale. So one of the things we've been doing is linking in with Norfolk Ponds Project and particularly with Carl Sayer, who many of you will, will know as well. We've been trying to get ghost ponds restored and also new ponds created. So it's been a big thing in the Bure catchment that we've been trying to pursue alongside those other projects as well recognising that for lots of species, and this is the work from Coles Hill back in early 2000s, which at a landscape scale, lots of the species are actually in those really small water bodies. So it goes back to that point about, you know, this is buying us some time. This is about putting freshwater biodiversity back into the landscape, not just into the river channel or into the big water bodies. And we know from the work that's gone on from the Norfolk Ponds Project that these ponds not just benefiting fresh waters, but really benefiting a whole range of species as well in the kind of farm landscape. But we're here to talk about chalk streams, so let's get back to the channel. Lots of work early on in this project just trying to improve physical habitat through really simple measures. So the sorts of things we've seen other people talk about already, just very simple things of dropping trees in, leaving them attached and hinged in with some real kind of success. That's kind of about trying to kickstart some of that in-stream process and then some sort of more traditional approaches working within constraints so this is actually working off trust lands just off our land 
kind of private landowners state but delivered through the trust trying to create some of those backwater and offline beaches in the landscape and again doing the same kind of thing this is on the same scheme on the scarabet which is putting some of that floodplain features back in but the problem is that the river channel is still separated from the floodplain and this kind of leads me on to the bigger picture I suppose we talked about stage zero a couple of times today. It's been mentioned by one or two people, and we've kind of really been embracing this in the trust, and particularly through a project which I'll mention in a moment. And it's become a bit of a buzzword in river restoration circles, and it comes from the US, and it really comes out of this piece of work that was done in 2008. Two geomorphologists in the states started looking at a load of streams, and they started to realise that the streams in the states were not what they thought they were. And they realised that these incised channels, which we've got lots of, were basically a result of mill structures being built. And in the US example, built obviously much more recently. And you start digging down through the floodplain and start looking at what's going on. And you start to see that actually these river systems were very different originally pre-impact. Of course, in the US, in terms of, sort of Western European influence and mill, mill building was quite recent. So these incised streams that we see that we've all been restoring in this country, lowland situations, are not the natural analogue. And the reason it's called stage zero is essentially there's this kind of stream evolution model. And what we've all been focused on is stage one of this model, which is, you know, nice meandering stream systems. And of course, not all rivers are the same and it depends on the bed substrate. It depends on the slope. It depends on the material that it's trying to carry. But it also depends on the vegetation and the plants and particularly the trees. And what we find with this kind of stage zero idea is that in areas where there's lots of deposition, so in the flat, shallow areas, like some of our lengths of chalk stream, we've essentially got these multi-thread panels where the water is at the surface of the floodplain and it's running in lots of very fine channels through woodland, through grassland. And I was very minded of this yesterday when Adam talked about those maps on the test and the fact that, you know, in the past, all of these small channels were running with water and now the water is just in the main channel. But I think what we've done through engineering is we basically mostly turn our rivers into this kind of stage where they're straight and they're over deepened. Our restoration work has been focused on getting them back to here. And what stage zero is saying is maybe, just in some cases, this is what we should be aiming for. And I think that's, that sort of idea is very much filtering through the river restoration community and everyone's getting really excited about it. Uh, and there are good reasons to get excited about it. So this is not a stage zero project, but this is a project that we did in Cumbria, which is more traditional river restoration, Skull Beck, and it's a real success and, and everyone's really proud of it. But I just sort of draw your attention to the fact that, you know, it costs three quarters of a million pounds to do. It represents just over 1% of the length of the River Eden SAC. So we need to do quite a lot of the River Eden SAC at £750,000. And it took 20 years to realise this from the ranger at that site starting to think about what they could do and getting agreement from the landowner. So I would argue that we can't do this on every river system. And this is a river system that can heal itself, not like the chalk streams that we we're talking about. So we need to find some different ways of doing that. And so one of the things we've been doing, and this is from another Riverlands project on Exmoor, and these aren't the most dramatic pictures because this, we've got some work going on at the moment 
on a bigger scale, but this is some small ditch work that's been done. Basically trying to employ that American stage zero restoration methodology to some ditch systems on Exmoor. So basically filling in these ditched channels and allowing the water to move across the landscape and find its own course and spread out really diffusely. So basically filling it in. And what we're trying to do, and what Ben Erdley has really been sort of pushing this down in, in Exmoor is, if we can do this really cheaply, you know, we could do lots of things, but it's going to be quite challenging because it's going to change the way some of our rivers look. And they will, you know, so at the moment on this bit, you can't really see where the water runs. That's what it looks like close up. And obviously this is a really small stream, but I would suggest that maybe we need to rethink about some sections of our lowland rivers, our bigger lowland rivers, and think about what should they really look like. And particularly when you start thinking about the benefits of doing this, both for the river, but also for society. Same amount of water, infiltrating much more, storing water during times of high flow, letting go of it more slowly, cleaning it, creating lots of areas for things like denitrification and processing of, of organic matter, materials, storing sediment. These are trees, you know, these could be cool places, even though the water is very shallow. The stuff from the US suggests that these sorts of places are absolutely brilliant for fish recruitment. So any concerns about fisheries, these are not places for big, whopping great trout, but they are places where you get huge amounts of trout recruitment and other species recruiting because food is so abundant and there's so much cover that predation is not so much of an issue. So there could be really lots, lots of benefits to adopting this sort of approach. So where are we going to do it? It feels like quite a dramatic shift. And you're worrying about losing some of those iconic chalk streams if everyone gets on the bandwagon with this. Stuart's talking about it on the test as well. I noticed this morning mentioned something about stage zero restoration. And Dylan's nodding his head at the back. I don't think we can do this everywhere. What I do think is that we have got a lot of floodplains and river systems that are not fit for purpose. We know that from the evidence. We could be doing a lot more with them. And we could do a lot more with them for nature, for climate, for people, um, you know, making our, our whole systems much more resilient. If we just created a bit of space to do these things, and it's not an either or. So people start saying, oh, should we be doing stage zero everywhere? I think the, the argument is that stage zero is one of those tools alongside lots of other things that we should be doing. And I'm a real advocate for all of these things I've kind of listed here, which is, you know, these mosaic habitats. So we've been doing some work on redefining priority habitats for lowland grazing marsh, recognising that floodplains are a really mixed combination of woodland, grassland, wetland, reed bed, and they should be that. And we could create some really interesting mosaics as part of that. Wet woodland beavers have been mentioned once. I think there's plenty of room for beavers, and they are coming, so it's really interesting to kind of hear that kind of level of acceptance, I think, that there's something we're going to have to deal with. So I think there's plenty of potential for doing all of these things in our floodplains and still leaving the space for the things that other people are worried about as well. And the benefits could be huge. And in my mind, I went to the River Rhine, and there was these huge container barges sort of going around behind me. And then looking the other way was this incredible floodplain forest, which is a habitat that we've almost completely lost. So I think other countries are managing to do this in really big setting. The Rhine at that point is the size of the Thames running through the centre of London, and it's surrounded by this kind of habitat. So just to reiterate some of the messages, I think we need a really holistic approach. I've talked quite a lot about physical restoration, but we can't do that without water quality, 
water quantity, so naturalizing the hydrology, which has very much been a theme of what others have said. We need to think about the whole landscape. We can't just focus on the river channel. We need to think about those small waters. We need to really think hard, I think, about how we use our river corridors. You know, they are places that could deliver huge amounts of benefit for us and for nature. And at the moment, we're just not using them in the right way. And one of the tools for that is making space for some of these really innovative things like stage zero and beavers. And we've got plenty of room for it if we can think about it carefully and we can be willing to kind of act and step in and manage if we need to. And this doesn't mean throwing away all the cultural landscapes as well. We've got enough room to keep some of those pristine bits of chalk stream that are cultural icons as well. Right, we have 10, maybe 15 minutes for some questions. Reminder, say who you are and politely keep it really brief, but let's keep nice, concise questions and then we'll get through a few of them. Okay, so let's start. Adrian Cook here, Arlen Watermeadows Trust. I think I gave the talk this morning, I can't remember. <laughs> Thank you very much, Stuart. Um, you don't have to go to America to see those streams because I've been doing some work in Wessex. And I prefer the term anastomose streams for branching streams. As you know, it's a special case for braided. And what I find very interesting, you can look at the evolution of them, just nothing complicated in the sort of geological sense, see how they possibly evolved to typically two or three channels from a single channel. And then at some point, of course, they become stabilised between avulsion events. Of course, they are relatively stable. Um, when they evolve, they produce another channel. Sometimes it doesn't go back to the main channel. And then, of course, we have come along and we've stabilised them with banks, with mills and all the rest of it. We've done it like that. And you can then look at these patterns, and it's a funny sort of way of thinking at it, but, but nature has actually bequeathed on us a relatively stable landscape, uh, which we have then made more stable. But the twist in the tale is that only circumstantial evidence, but if you look at the literature and soil science, a lot of that cause of, of anabranching, anastomosis, if you like, was caused by our ancestors, clearing the Mesolithic wildwood, creating agriculture, choking the channels up, so they were forced every so often to leave their original beds and go on further. But this has bequeathed us the most complicated pattern of rivers, which, of course, you can put well, mills, water meadows, watercress beds, or straighten bits out, or put a canal in, or whatever you want to do. So you've just got to go to Wessex. Okay. <laughs> um, do you want to come back on? I'm, I'm going to appeal again for brevity and yes. um, questions as well. So <laughs> anyone, let's go in the middle here. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin Hans. Pippa, I'm very tempted to vote for you, but I live in Cambridge. Our development in Cambridge is going to be affected and affecting, will affect South Cams. Can we operate beyond the district council boundaries, the local authority boundaries? Is there some links, some anastomizing? Oh, <laughs> I'm going to take anastomizing back. <laughs> so actually, for the first time now, the new local plan will be a joint one because it's seen that it's completely inextricably linked what's happening in Cambridge and the massively changing area of South Cambridgeshire. So the new local plan will be called the Greater Cambridge Local Plan. And it is being worked on together between the Cambridge City Council planners and the South Cambridgeshire District planners. That answers your question. Very different cultures of organisations coming together and visions, and there's a huge amount sort of happening there. But the fact is, it, it is now, well, anastomizing. So you, there's no way that you can actually deal with them separately, we think. Yes. All for Westerbrook. 
I have a son working in a company specializing in sustainable urban development. And when I heard Pippin and Stuart, I thought maybe you can combine these things. When you plan a new development, you can integrate biodiversity. If you have a stream flowing through, you can integrate that too and maybe enhance biodiversity, get the best of the two worlds. And a third thing, you can teach or you can deliver to people the connection to the natural world. Is, is that something that you are, are able to do? Yeah, I very much subscribe to that view. When I first looked at how nature and biodiversity had been included within the current local plan, I was pointed towards the green infrastructure strategy and for it. And it was a PDF document that couldn't be layered in with the planning documents. So I said, well, how on earth can we be planning and taking into account all of the nature and the water systems and everything if it's a PDF document? What's happening now is you've got almost a 13-layer planning process where all of these layers, carbon, water, biodiversity, access to nature, engagement with nature has been talked about as well, as well as the strategic sites for development. So at least all of that information will be on the table. Now, there's a fantastic EU-funded project that's been running for years called Nature Smart Cities. And it's all about how do you integrate, I'm sure your son perhaps will be looking, how do you integrate the green ways instead of the cement ways in which you can bring in flood management, water retention, air pollution, you know, with bringing in natural ways. What we're hearing from developers, some developers, is that's just all too expensive. You don't get paid back on the market. But there are some developers, and that's now been adopted in our supplementary planning documents, which is called Developing with Nature Toolkit. And that's been done together with a group of developers here in Cambridgeshire who voluntarily are ascribing to those, to those ways of developing. So we've set now, we was with, with Tony on a, on a panel just recently looking about whether or not home building and placemaking can help nature recovery. And some would say that's a complete oxymoron, you know. But for the first time in the planning system, you have what's called biodiversity net gain and environmental net gain. We have now said that we will set 20% biodiversity net gain. So you have to show how that will enrich and enhance nature. First of all, you have to see how much you can protect and mitigate. And then you have to make sure that you've enhanced it. Nationally, it's 10%. People who are here in this room have said 10% is within the margin of error in a, in a development. But that's the national threshold 10%. And it's good that at least there's something, because before, when I joined in 2018, there was nothing to put nature really on the table. We're saying it should be 20%. So within there, there's the creativity, the, the possibility. It's not easy, but, you know, hopefully we're, we're moving towards that. Sure. Thanks, Joe. Um, Sean, I had this question prepared, but again... I'm on thin ice for this. Do you have any experience of Grampian-style conditions in development? Yes, um, successfully in Melbourne, they managed to attach a Grampian condition. So the Gramp do you want to explain to everybody what a Grampian condition is? Well, my understanding is that you can ask a water company and or a developer to develop a plan as to whether the water company can cope with the waste that's coming out of the development. Yeah. So one of the, my colleagues, um, who's the Melbourne councillor, and you know, Melbourne, we've got the River Mel um, and sort of part of the chalk streams. 
So with a new development that was coming in, again, on appeal, so it hadn't come through the planning system, but because there wasn't a sound local plan, so you couldn't impose your policies, a development of over 100 houses came in on appeal. But at the moment where it went through the conditions, the fellow councillor was able to successfully argue that there should be a Grampian condition on that one. We don't get it every time. It's really hard to argue for it. But that one was possible because what it was showing was there was so little capacity that was all backing up. You know, coming up into people's gardens, coming up through their outdoor toilets. You could just have bubbling sewage, you know, just coming up in, in wet conditions. They were able to argue for that grampian condition. That's what I heard. What do I say? What was, what was it? Four percent on that case law getting through? You know, in terms of us trying to get that through the planning system, it's been a very low percentage, but we have tried to do it. What we're now trying to put into the next local plan is that that would be the basis, that would be the minimum. You know, you would be able to ensure that any development would have to prove that it had the capacity and have a plan in place. Hi, Mike Shalom from the Cambridge Independent. Um, yeah, Pippa, you said that the needs of the local population need to be balanced with the needs of the environment. Are you aware that a lot of people in the local population are very concerned about what's happening and concerned that they've been effectively removed from the equation? In particular, it isn't really the needs of the local population that you're addressing. It's the needs of a future projected local population and that the needs of the actual local population now are being sidelined. Thanks, Mike. I think it's wonderful. The Cambridge Independent I read regularly. Part of the paper is all about the incredible innovations that are happening as part of the world-class technology, biopharma, life sciences. The front pages are all slamming the councillors who are sort of saying, well, how do you deal with where people live and travel to if they're part of that incredible industry? I'm part of the people that joined politics because I felt it wasn't responding, that the levers weren't being used, that we didn't have the right kind of levers. And something like the streams and the systems, you don't change them overnight. But I think you have to be within the system to try and change them. I've talked to lots of young people who cannot afford to live in this area. I've talked about, we've had a piece of evidence done that shows depending on where you are within the companies and the university and the hospitals, from the top ranking jobs to the lowest, as you go farther down the rank and the lower paying jobs, the further you have to commute. We're Victorian style pushing people out into Victorian smog type commuting patterns. We've had all of the Cambridgeshire sixth form college head teachers write publicly to the public transport system saying, do you realise how you are choking young people's social aspirations? Because in a place where we've got world-class sixth form colleges, they can't choose to go there unless they have a parent who's not working with a car that can take them back and forwards and to all of their extracurriculars because the bus service does not provide them with that. I've been on the climate marches with many people who believe we have to deal with that, and I do too. But we can't deal with some of the ways that we have to deal with it with some of the infrastructure that we're talking about it. We don't want the infrastructure, but we don't want climate change. I don't know the answers, but I feel that unless we're within the system trying to work out how we improve the levers and the pressures and the policy ways of dealing with it, that is for people who are in the system now.
As I say, I joined because I didn't want to see unplanned, inappropriate development because no policies were being applied because they all went through appeal. So I'm trying to say, how do you have a sound planning process that does get approval? Now, I did ask because I thought that the planning was for a future projection that perhaps wasn't being questioned or interrogated enough. I've been one of the ones who argued against Cambridge Ahead's independent economic review because it didn't have enough money to also look at the climate and water and environmental impacts of what was being projected. That was the answer. But they were looking at recruitment and retention for the businesses and the industry that is in our area. So we asked planners, given COVID, to recheck, to go back and say, hasn't this all changed? Hasn't growth slowed down? Haven't working patterns changed? The evidence that has come back is that because of COVID, because of the incredible success of our life sciences sector, which developed part of the vaccines, growth doubled during COVID in our area. Not in hospitality, not in retail, but in the life sciences sector. The evidence that's been given to us, and that's just what we've been given as evidence from this study, is that we have already reached the 2041 projections for growth in jobs. Now, is that an abdication of responsibility to be in the hard place where you say, how do you deal with that? I don't have all the answers, but I do wish that we, you know, we come together and let's all sit, like we're talking about this stakeholder stuff, all sit around and say, what are we going to do? Not just shut the door after the horse is bolted. How do we deal with this? But how do we deal with it in a way in which nature and environment, I absolutely believe, is high on the agenda? That's all I can say. I just want to finish with one thing, because there's lots of, Charles, you touched on this, there's targets going into 2040, 2050 and beyond. So I'm just going to put you very briefly on the spot and just give us one quick uh, win each of, of some action. It can be at any level that you, you think is attainable now and that people should be focusing on. I'll give someone else a question. Okay. Well, I think locally you've got the Granta flagship project. So I, I would engage as much as you can with that because what I think has showed itself to me to be to work powerfully in Norfolk is if you if you concentrate your firepower as I've decided to with the River Nar and 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 really push what you can do as much as possible in one place. It seems apparently unfair to the other places, but it demonstrates the art of the possible and it is very contagious. And so then it catches around and then you can start to look at the other streams. So concentrate on the granter. And then secondly, I would start looking at the short streams first proposal with a Cambridge application. Start talking to Anglian Water about reducing the abstraction in the headwaters and using the lower reaches of the CAM and recirculating the water and pushing Fenland Reservoir, which I think is the, the way you'll get that to work, and bringing it forward in terms of timetabling. And another idea, which you'll have to call me about afterwards, which is the way you use groundwater as an insurance scheme to get around the Achilles heel of flow recovery, which is the flow recovery to get the flow. What would be cited to you as the problem with the planning firstly. But I'll talk to anyone who wants to know about that primarily afterwards. So those two things, flagship project, chalk streams first. Brilliant. That's given me time to think about something as well. So I, I'm going to go more general than that. And I'm going to make the point that I think water, as well as the thing that we're all wringing our hands about, the state of our rivers, the state of the water system, flooding, water resources, I think is a really big part of the solution, actually. You know, and I'm, I'm not just talking up my own job and my own kind of passion, but I think it really is. And I think people are realising that. 
because if we manage water and we're managing both ends of the spectrum, then that places a focus on our soils, agriculture, making space for nature, and also, you know, the whole planning infrastructure. We've, we've talked quite a lot about, you know, how water is a limit to growth at a local level, and we know it is at a global level, but I think it can be part of the solution. If we can get smarter about hanging on to clean water for longer in the times when we've got lots of it and making it available, then that would require a complete systematic change to the way we manage land, the way that we manage urban areas. And mm -hmm. that could be the solution, I think, to lots of things. And if we do that in the right places, I think that could play real, uh, you know, really well with what we need to do for nature uh, and for climate as well. So just a plug for, you know, view everything through the lens of water. And I think we will make the right decisions. So on that one, I think if we look at the lens of water and the issue of sewage and making sure that we can keep our rivers and chalk streams healthy here in Cambridgeshire, then I think would be to be supportive in any way you can through our consultations, the lobbying, the citizen science, the working with um, the water companies and the local authorities to make sure that we have a designation which gives us some greater status to apply to our chalk streams in our planning system, which would then be this safe bathing water designation. As I said, for me, it's not about the bathing status. It's about giving it a designation, which is within the hierarchy of possible regulations and delegation designations. And that means that there would then be the responsibility of the environment agency together with the water companies to monitor the water quality in our chalk streams. Right, Thank you for listening to this Owned by Everyone podcast, one in a series of eight recorded at the Conference on the Wonder, Plight and Future of Chalk Streams, held in Cambridge at the end of March 2023. Our conference wouldn't have been possible without generous funding from Pembroke College Cambridge, the University of Cambridge's School of Arts and Humanities Impact Fund and the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. So we want to thank them too. Now, go back to ownedbyeveryone.org and swim in the pool of water resources of all kinds that you'll find there.